1 Corinthians chapter 12. What I wanted to do for these few weeks is just uh, do something that I've said I would do every three years, and it's been five years since I did it. And we desperately need to stop and pause as a church body and to rethink how we are doing things. Why are we doing things? We've had an influx of different people. We did a combination of merging two churches here in the community a, a couple years back. And so there's philosophy of ministry that is really, really critical that we would understand. Let me start off with this kind of a thought, okay? Um, what we're thinking about and what I want to share with you, and some of you this is going to be like, I've heard all these things, but it really makes a difference why we do what we do here as a church, or it really makes a difference in the sense, uh, from this perspective at times, the sense of what is expected of different individuals, different contributions, different folk that are involved in that ministry. And so, uh, what we want to do is talk about some of those things. For instance, what is, let me just throw this out, what is the expectations that you have of what the pastoral staff is supposed to do? Uh, What what should we be doing about different ministries? Should we just do ministries for the sake that we've always done them that way? Or should we, how do we reevaluate different ministries? Is there a time sometimes to change ministries or change approaches? And so we want to share with that philosophy by which we operate. And it would be very helpful to make sure that all of us, all of the staff, all of the, the different officers in the church, as well as the body are all on the same page. But let me start with this, just to lay out a scene. You're moving to a new area. You're wanting to find a church, okay? What resources would you do? Would you use? to find out, is there a church there that could meet my needs? How would you find one? I know we're starting off thinking too hard early in the morning, but... Okay, internet is going to be the thing that now is the default that we wouldn't have used 15 years ago, but now it's going to be the default. What else would you use? You're going in an area and you say, okay, the internet doesn't give me a lot of help. How else, how do I find out a little bit more about them? What's that? Okay, ask the individuals that, well, I'm going to back it up. You're not even there yet. You, can you still ask people that, are, that know about that area and get references? What if you say, I don't know somebody in that town. I see a couple of internet pages, but they don't give me much information. How else could you find out? Okay, you're going to want to visit. Before you move, let's, let's be frank about it. Before you move to an area, don't you think it's important to make sure you have a church home? Okay, because that's going to be critical to your life. And so to go there and to find out, is there a church that I can grow in, contribute to, it would be, it would behoove people. I, I, I just, I, I'm sorry, I just don't fathom why make such major changes in life and never find if there's a Christian family community to help you out nearby before somebody moves a distance. What else would you look, could you look for? Okay, there, uh, the, the good suggestion. I th- you, there's a number of good mission agencies. There's a number of good schools that are conservative that if you call, they might be able to give you recommendations. Or if you're saying, okay, here we go, let's look for a little bit of information. By the way, when you're looking at the Internet, look at some of the doctrinal concerns. You know, sometimes when we choose churches, we choose churches based upon, okay, I came in and it made me feel good. Can you, be, can you feel good about something and still there could be something awry in that body. Okay, truly, truly, that's the case. And so what you want to do is you want to check out doctrinal statement because whatever somebody believes, they're going to behave according to that way. And so you want to do that. When you're visiting a church and you're walking into a church, what do you look for? Now, I'll tell you what some people will say right away. Okay, we get this frequently. The, The two questions that we get immediately is, what type of music do you use and what Bible translation? Those are the two questions that most everybody who visits, who comes from a Christian background, will ask about. And, they, and, then, and then they'll go from there in their search. 
I'm not sure those are the two most important questions. Frankly, I'm, I'm not thinking they are. Okay? Could, you, could there be more than one Bible translation used in a good church? Yes, there could be. There could be. Okay? Could there be, when you go to a different part of the country, could there be a different style of music used in a different part of a country? We accept that internationally. Okay? And, and we, we say, okay, they may do a little bit different flavor. So I'm not sure that you walk in and say, unless they do everything like they do up north, okay, is always the criteria. I think there's bigger, and, and yet I understand this. My preference for the style of music that I want to be worshiping with, my preference for what, what translations I'm comfortable with, okay, that's going to play into my preference, Okay, and I want, and that's going to make it comfortable for me. But if I'm looking and starting with what are the more important, okay, the the very the very foundational start, I I, I would think I would want to know this. I would think when I'm walking into church, I'm going to look for these types of things. I'm going to look if the congregation does use Bibles. Now it gets hard this day, doesn't it? What what is what's throwing the, into years ago? You used to be able to watch if people walked in and they carried a Bible. Okay, what, what's the problem with that today? Okay, yeah, now, now people are using phones, they're using iPads. And, and by the way, just let me throw this out there. Don't assume when you look down the aisle and you see somebody looking at their phone, don't assume that they're playing Angry Birds, okay? We need to stop that. We, we seriously do. They could seriously be doing what with their iPhone? They could be following the Bible, okay? They could be highlighting. I mean, there are some really wonderful programs that while somebody's going through, you could all of a sudden highlight something and say, the preacher said this. Is that really what... Okay. And you can check up on them. By the way, is there anything wrong with checking up on the preacher? Not at all, especially me. Okay, check up on it. Uh, and so, uh, so when, you, when we still look, I, I would still look around. Are people using, oh, and I'm going to throw this, I really struggle with the screen. One area of the screen that I really try not to do, okay, just for inference, because some of you ask. They say, why don't you put more of the passages on the screen? You know, when you do cross-references, why don't you put more of it up there? There's a reason why I don't always want to do that. I want you to look it in your Bible. I want you to keep, keep being Bible smart. And by the way, even looking up chapters, does that help you learn your Bible? Yeah, yeah. So there, it has to be balanced in that area. And so sometimes philosophically, we do certain things, even with the screen. Uh, you know, my, I, I say this as my, um, my pet peeve, okay? My pet peeve with the screen is when we have the kids in here, I don't want us to do what? Yeah, I don't want you to stand. Why? So when I, choo when I choose songs and when I lay out the service, why don't I want you standing when the kids are in here? The kids can't see. Okay? And when kids can't see, and if they're looking at somebody's backside, okay, and that's all the level they see, what, what, is, what does that do to the kids after a while? Yeah, they're going to tune out. I've visited a couple churches that what they do is they give out coloring pages to the kids for the song service. Because the kids can't participate, and then you'd look down the aisle, and the kids aren't even doing anything, but they're doing the coloring pages. And it's like, okay, we just designed the service so that the kids think they don't have to be involved. Okay, so philosophically, a lot of things that happen in a church service happen with purpose. They happen with design, why, why you do what you do. And so I'm going to walk into church, and I'm going to look at these types of things. Do they purposely encourage the people to use Bibles? 
I think that's critical, is it not? To have your congregation looking at Bibles and in some way. I'm going to look at a church, if I'm going to walk in, I want to know what the preaching and teaching is. Because the critical mass of a church worship service, I know some of you don't, uh, may not think this, but there isn't two parts of a worship service. You know, it's commonly thought this way. We are going to worship by singing, and now we're just going to have to sit and listen to a message. Okay, that's not, that's not biblical. Part of worship is the singing, and another part of the worship is hearing God's word. It's all a part of that. And so I'm going to want to know, what is, what is their teaching? What are they, what are they, te- what are they doing? Do they, do they speak in a way, is there preaching that's done in a way that fills me, that helps me to understand God's word? I don't mean this in a bad way, but I've sat under some preaching sometimes that it's like ho-hum. Now, some of you are sitting there and saying, we do that every Sunday. You should be on our end. Okay. There's, but, but you want to be able to walk away and say, I was challenged. I was encouraged. I was kicked in the backside sometimes and patted on the back at the same time. And so it's important, looking at what's being preached. I would look around if I'm walking into church. I want to know if they have outreach. I don't want to know if they have missions. Not only overseas, but where do they have to have missions? Local missions. they got to have local outreach because otherwise we get caught up with saying we're doing the Great Commission and we're doing what God wanted and we're reaching the world but we're letting our own community go to hell. And so what we want to do is we want to look. Now, the invitations may be a little bit different. Does everybody have to do the invitation the way we do it in order to make it right? No. But do they give an opportunity? Do they try to draw the net? Do they reach out? In some services that, that I've, some of you have visited, some, uh, some here have moved and they said, I have loved the preaching, but there's, no, at the, there's nothing that says to the person in, in the service, here's how you get saved. There's nothing really explained or nothing, no, no invite to come and talk to us afterwards or let us be able to visit. And so something that would be a little bit persuasive to help the individuals to make decisions. The tracks, I would look and see, are they, do they have tracks? Do they have those types of things? I would look at the music ministry. What is the purpose of the music ministry? Now genre is going to be some, to some degree involved, but also some personal taste here, because some of you would love that, that if the church service was all classical. Some would love the church service to be southern gospel. Okay, And so sometimes we understand there's difference in genre based on background, things of that sort. However, more importantly is, I would look at is the service-only musics. By the way, could we have a good worship service and do all music without any preaching? Yes, we could. Yes, we could. But at the same time, if it is all just music, 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 totally. Or if the purpose of it is to just get, I mean, we have a purpose for music at times. Some of the purpose is we want to encourage. I'll give you a season of the year that we want our music to be really vibrant in one ministry. Some of you wear earplugs when we do this ministry. VBS. Okay, VBS. We want that music to have a purpose that it's going to encourage and it's still, and to give the kids a flavor that the kids say, this is enjoyable, this is a good experience. And so there's a purpose and there's nothing wrong with that purpose at times. But we want to look and see what is the purpose. I would want to know, is this church compassionate? However, I make this comment. Be careful you don't make quick conclusions. Have you ever come to church and you haven't felt friendly? No, none of you. Are, none of you want to say, "Not me. 
I always walk in and I always want to walk up to visitors and shake their hands. Seriously? Have you ever had Sundays that you come in and say, I hope nobody talks to me, I just want to sit here. Okay, I want to sit here and I just, I need to be ministered to. I just, it's one of those times that I would, I would guess, even though we don't want to say it, I would guess a whole bunch of us have. There's been a whole bunch that just say, just let me come and be quiet in my niche. So we walk into church and we, we sit next to somebody who is having one of those weeks. Maybe they heard of a family death. And we sit there and go, this person wasn't friendly. All this person did was kind of just sit there. I'm never going back to that church. Be very careful judging quickly. Okay? Be very careful. But we want to know, is there compassion? Is there, is there, I would want to know, how did they do things? Because this is critical to know. How does the leadership lead? How does the congregation respond? How, how in this church service, what is their interaction with one another? What, what is there as far as a polity? Do you know what polity means? Okay, it's how you do things. Okay, polity is the organization, okay, uh, and it explains how the, how the government of the church functions. Is there a biblical format for church government? Or did God say, whatever works for you, do? No, no. But what influences polity more than anything next to Scripture? Tradition. Tradition and culture. Right? Um, you were, you've, you've ministered in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, where there was a lot of this um, Kremlin telling everybody what to do, for generations, right? Okay, for generations. And it's almost inbred into the people that they are told exactly what to do from higher-ups. Okay? And they grew up in generations that way. What happens in a lot of the churches in Eastern Europe? Do they have denominational heads? They don't call them that in independent churches, but they call them unions. They call them... Uh, unions is the term that's typically used in Eastern Europe. And it's almost a, a type of government that you're being told as independent churches what to do by somebody up at, the, up at the top. Where did that come from? That came more from culture than it does from Scripture. And people who grew up in that culture, they're used to being told what to do, what to believe. And then you stick an American in there. And what, America, what Americans think about government? Okay, my rights. You know, we're independent thinkers. Okay, and so Americans want to come in, and what's the first thing that Americans think they need to change is the cultural polity of that church in their missions. And there's a biblical aspect to it. Okay, we want to be independent. I understand all that. But I would want to know what, how things are operating and how they function and who has the say. If I'm going to go there and be involved in that church, is it, does it follow as closely as possible to the Word of God? So we have these things. Okay. In fact, when we started this church in 1979, I want to tell you the story this morning, how we started in 1979, because it's important. When we started, we came to this community for a purpose. We came with a plan, and we came with a philosophy of what we wanted to do as a church so that Faith Baptist Church had a distinction. If we were going to come and say, all we want to do is get people saved, there was already churches in this community doing that. And there were, some, there were some good churches that they had strong evangelistic outreach. That wasn't our only goal. 
We had a far, a far uh, more drastic idea of what we wanted to do. We were told by two, uh, two pa uh, pastors in the area when we met for a lunch and after about six months being here, we were told, you boys, that was the, uh, the other pastor and myself, the first pastor, we were told that you boys should just leave the area. There's enough people getting saved and nobody else needs to come here and help get them saved. And it was like, well, that was encouraging. Okay, And so we came with a plan. We came with a purpose. Part of it was because what we came into with this church, what, when we got this church uh, inherited, what we inherited, and it wasn't Faith Baptist Church. It was a different name at that point, a different organ, totally differently organized. We came and we was like, okay, we need to change some philosophy on how things are done and why they are done. Now that philosophy and that plan has not changed since 1979. We still want to operate by the same principle, the same philosophy. But you know what makes a difference? Is if you don't know what that philosophy is, you join into our body and all of a sudden you say, well, how come we don't do it like such and such a church or such? So we need to back up and say, here's where we started and here's our goals. Here's how we make decisions. And it's not based on pure traditionalism. It's not based on pure preferences. It's based on some philosophy that we think is biblically guided, most of it, by Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 down through, I think it's 12 through 15 or 16. That guides us in our philosophy. But before we get there, let's do a little bit. We need to make sure that everybody in this room is thinking the same thing because if we're going to say, here's what we do as a church, we better understand what a church is supposed to do. Okay? Here, I'll, I'll throw this out to you. When we visit people and, and we get into conversations and they say, well, I think the church is supposed to do this. I think the church should provide everybody opportunities for all kinds of recreation and fellowship. Can all of a sudden activities and events and fun things take over the entire ministry? Sure. I think that the church's main job is just foreign missions. Okay, is foreign missions important? You're gonna, you, everybody going to say yes, that it's important? Okay. But if that's the only thing we do, I think that the church, the most important thing of the church is, and you can put in whatever you want. Well, if we aren't on the same philosophical page, then some of the ministries that we're doing, you may not understand why. And so we need to practice, back up, and here's the question, and it's, these are simple. I'm going to fly, fly, fly through some of this this morning, but I'm going to get more in detail next week and the week after. What we do, what we understand and believe about a church is critical mass, okay? I want to make sure all, we're all on the same page. What is church? What are we supposed to be doing? What does God call a church? Now, when we use the term church, okay, and we say church, what, 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 is, what could be in our culture, in our English, when we say church, what could be we be referring to? The building, anything else? The congregation, anything else? Okay, it could be a local body. It could be some people when they say church, they are thinking denomination. Okay, could it be a single service? I bet you some of you said this this morning. We're headed to church today. Okay, and you were thinking more of 9, 15, 10, 30, that we're going to do church today. So when we start putting down the different terminologies, sure, it could be all these different ideas. Okay, and it's not incorrect to say, okay, Church being the building. I mean, what else are we going to call it? 
We're going to change the entire culture and call it a different word. So we understand that that happens. But when the Bible uses the term church, let's go there. Let's think that for a second. Okay, ecclesia is the word. It's two different words that are put together in the original. Ek, out, kaleo, to be called out. It was basically an idea that what we're going to do is we're going to be called out to meet together, to do something. Now, when that term is used in the Bible, it doesn't always mean, okay, in every single instance, it doesn't always mean this type of gathering. In fact, when, it has, when it's used at times, it's the reference of a group of people that had a common interest who were called out to do something, to do some type of business. I'll give you an example of that. It's used a couple times in the book of Acts where it was the silversmiths. It was their union. It was their guild. And it was called an ecclesia. Now, that, they weren't there to worship God. They were there to do a business. They were, they were a monopoly there in that town, and they were in control, and they were, they were upset with Paul because he was coming, he was preaching the word of God and it affected their business so the ecclesia of the silversmiths, their guild was called together, how are we going to deal with this guy? Okay, when the Old Testament, referencing Israel, in New Testament referencing a couple times, calls Israel a church in the wilderness. That ecclesia, they were called out of Egypt and they were moving and they were supposed to be worshiping God in a different sense. Now, there's a few occasions where ecclesia is used in a very broad term. But when we start talking about in the Bible, in the church sense, we start saying, okay, of the, of the times that it's used almost all the time, 110 of those times that shows up in scriptures, it's referring to believers. It's referring to what you would say is church, a religious entity, a religious group, people who are called out in order to do something as far as worship or following Christ. Most all the time, okay, when it's used, it could refer to one of two different things. It could refer to all the believers of all time. Some will call this the universal church, okay? We hesitate with that term because the Catholics have run with that term and they said the universal church is everybody who is supposed to be under Catholicism and the Pope's in charge, okay? And so we hesitate with that term. And so we use other terms that say, okay, um, where Jesus says, I will build my church, it wasn't necessarily, okay, I'm going to build that one in Lebanon, I'm going to build that one in Reading, I'm going to build that. It was, I'm going to build this entity of all the believers that sometimes we call other terms. In the scriptures, it could be called that we are the family of God. It could be in scriptures that we are called um, the body of Christ in a bigger sense. But it's used when Jesus said to Paul, he said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecutest thou me? Asking him and saying, I, this is my body, this is my church, and you're persecuting me. And yet Paul had gone to multiple different communities already. And so we have this idea that there could be this fellowship of saints. There could be this household of God. Some of the ter- excuse me, some of the terms that are used in a very big, broad sense include some of these, the bride of Christ, the uh, elect of the saints. Okay, and so you have those terminologies that refers to the big... You, you run into this. You travel, you go somewhere, and you run into some believers that you didn't expect to run into. You're on vacation, you're at Disney World, and you run into somebody, and you immediately say, get in a conversation, and you feel there's a bond there, and find out they're born again. Because they're of the family of God. Okay, in that sense, there is the group, there's an entity. That, that entity, some people will say, well, that's the entity that I'm going to worship with. That's the group that, that I'm going to belong to, and that's the only thing there is in Scripture. That's not true. Okay, 
This, this entity of the family of God, this bride of Christ, it's not yet complete. It's not going to be completed until what event takes place. And he says, that's it. Everybody who's a part of it, come up. The rapture. Okay. And so it's not to be a substitute for local church. Oh, I'm part of the family of God, so I can just sit at home and worship as I please because I'm part of the family of God. No, no, there's, a, there's another aspect of church given in Scripture. But let me f- finish up with this entity called the church, the big church, the, un- the, the macro church that, that some would refer to or some would use the term the uh, universal concept. It has never yet met as a group. Okay, And yet, in the Scriptures, we're told not to forsake the assembly. He's saying there is a group that meets that's called church. It uh, has no officers... Unless you're of the persuasion that you're going to say, okay, the Pope, the Cardinals, they are the officers. And we're not of that persuasion. There is no universal bishop beyond Jesus Christ. Um, There is no universal communion. And yet in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told and commanded to meet together for communion. Well, who's meeting? Not this big universal body, but individual churches, smaller macro, micro organisms that demonstrate, illustrate some of that macro organism. There is no offerings. You, you do know this, that we are commanded to give offerings on a weekly basis. And so there's no universal church collecting it. There is no universal form of recovering saints. Or disciplining, if you if you are more familiar with that term out of Matthew chapter 18. That 18 that says, okay, put them out of the body and seek to recover them. Okay, it's not talking about this universal body. And though we are, in, we are say, I'm a part of the family of God, I need to be part of that smaller entity that is most often referred to in Scripture. In fact, when the term shows up in the New Testament, 95% of the time the estimates, those who are scholarly and, and deal with this, talks about the local, the individual church or churches. You, tell, you have this, Matthew 18, when you're dealing with church discipline, tell it to the church. After you've gone to them three times. It isn't tell it everywhere, but tell it to that one group. That idea that says under the church at Corinth, he talks about. Under the churches of Galatia, there was multiple ones. Under the churches in Judea, we have no such custom he talks about as in the churches of the area. The majority of the times that we're talking about in scripture, church, we're talking about a body like this. A localized body of believers who are united in Jesus Christ, who are part of the family of God, but they have chosen to get together in order to do worship a certain way, in order to do the business of God and carry it out. And my question to throw out to you is, how many people does it take to have a church? Do not jump to Matthew 18 and say, where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. Okay, And therefore, every time I get together with two or three believers... We're a church. That means every time you sit as a family for supper, you're a church? Every time? Because it's not biblical. Okay, that's why not. Okay, there, that's where I'm getting to. Okay, there, the idea is every time I meet somebody at Walmart who's a believer, we formed a church. Every time you go camping and meet another Christian, you've all of a sudden become a church? Is a church something that all of a sudden, boom, we get together and we we formed a church? Or is there more to it? There's got to be more to it, folk. There's just, I mean, think this through. A church is not determined by numbers. Now, I'm going back to what you alluded to, Ron. Could two or three of us organize and begin a church? 
Yes, absolutely. And when we started this thing, we were really small in numbers. Okay? We were in the, in the membership at that time when we first started that thing. We were just over double digits of those who were officially members of our church. The, uh, the idea here is more, more of a, a bigger concept. The bigger concept of what is a real church. Now, I can have a Bible study and I can be meeting with some believers, but eventually I've got to get to a point where if I'm going to be a church, I've got to make sure there's a relationship where I'm committing to these other people. I've got to make sure that there's an intent here, that we're going to do, we're called out to do business. The business of God. And we commit together that we are going to take it upon ourselves, that we're going to be committed to one another and committed to the business of God. This is much more than just get together for a meal. Much more than just talking around the campfire. This has purpose. This has intent. This has a form of organization in the New Testament. Because in the church, you're given officers, are you not? Okay, if we're organizing a church, we're going to want to find a shepherd of that church. We're going to want to find officers for that church. That's, that doesn't happen at your dinner table. Okay, there's going to be the activity that's present that says, we're going to do the business of the church, and the business of the church has basically four different goals in it, four different activities. Now, again, you're listening to me. You might be getting bored, but you get this because this is what you signed up when you came to this church. Okay, this is why we're functioning the way we function is based on this philosophy and understanding. But let me, let me clarify. Just getting together in a small fellowship does not make me a church. Okay, in fact, if all of a sudden a group of you said, we're going to hold our own little meeting, okay, could you, if you had the idea that whenever we get together we can do business, could we have mayhem if all of a sudden, no offense to you people, if John got everybody over here together and said, we're going to make decisions for the rest of the body, would you want that? No offense, John. Okay. Would you want just a small group doing that? Okay, there's got to be some type of structure, some type of cohesiveness. There's got to be some type of orderliness to how we function, how we do, no matter what our number is. Let me go a step further, okay? In the New Testament, to understand what we're supposed to do, there are some nicknames given to the church. Do you remember any of the other titles he gives to church? Bride? Any others? Okay, the fellowship is there. Fellowship is there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bypass that one for right now. But some of the other. Body is one. Bride is one. Can you think of any others? Household? A household is there. Okay. In fact, where it's talking household, it also, if, it's, if I'm thinking the passage you are, he uses another term in the original that it's not just household, but it's also, a, what, do you, what did they use in the Old Testament? Is where they gathered, where they were a temple. Okay. The word temple is used, okay, in the original language in that one text for that idea of the church. Can you think of any others? Okay, well, the saints is that broad sense. That's a good one. That's a good one. Let me give you for, specifically for the church, okay, and, and like, a, like a local church area. There's the temple. So when we think of the temple aspect, we're talking about that close fellowship, that, in, that living there, that idea that there's a you. I'm sorry, there's a unity, there's a building, that there's a building up, if you would be, if you would, in this passage where it talks about the temple of God and makes that analogy that we are the temple, we are the building, we are, we are what's supposed to be growing and expanding in that sense. He uses in 1 Timothy 3, he calls us the pillar and ground of the truth. When you think of being called the pillar and ground of a truth, this church, 
Here, we're supposed to be a pillar and ground of truth. What does that tell you we're supposed to do? Okay, our foundation is the Bible. Okay, anything else? That's, that's your ground. That's your foundation. What's the pillar do? Well, it holds up things. What are we supposed to be holding up? Okay, each other. That's a good one. What would you say? The truths of God? Absolutely. So we're having that idea that there's a pillar and ground. It gives us a little bit of a sense of what we're supposed to be doing. Let's, let's throw this one at you. In the book of Revelation, we're called the candlesticks or the lampstands. Where he talks about the angels, or really the messengers, are moving about the seven different candlesticks. And then he starts talking about those candlesticks in chapters 2 and 3. What does a candlestick say to you? Okay, it's supposed to be providing light where there is... Okay, okay. Which fits that idea that you, you and I were the lights of the world. Okay, and we're supposed to be holding up Jesus Christ. When you talk in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, this is your most expansive analogy that God uses. 1 Corinthians 12 is where we, I said, join me. In 1 Corinthians 12. This is the one term that several of you whispered that, that, that is most commonly used in Scripture. It is his body. It's the body. Jump with me into the analogy. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to jump down to verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are, the one, are one body, so is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether bond or free, been made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Okay. He goes on. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body... Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eyeball, who would do the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now hath God set members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all member, and if they were all one member, where were the body? But now they are many, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor they, he goes on, he says again, the head to the feet, I don't need you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be feeble. They're necessary, like your big toe. He goes on. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we should bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor honor to that part which seems to be lacking. That there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have same care one for another. Because if one member suffers, then how many are supposed to suffer? If one member be honored, how many should rejoice? Yeah. Now are you the body of Christ, members in particular. And then he goes on, God hath said in the body, and he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Let's make some quick observations from this text. Some quick conclusions. The church has a special unity with Jesus Christ. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. Any analogy falls short. But when Jesus says, you're persecuting me, you're per, you're, when you're persecuting the believers, you're persecuting me. We have a bond, a spiritual union with Christ when we are born again. And then as we serve together, that bond with Christ is very unique. That even includes the bond that we have as a larger body. There is also a special union that we have with one another. Now that we can even sense at times with people outside of our church who are born again in that family of God, but it intensifies with those that we are committed to be worshiping with. A body must have organization. 
the local church. Let's talk about it. It's got to have organization to function. There's a head to it. There's got to be some that are going to be serving as the, like your physical body has different elements to give symmetry and balance to it. So the church body has to have organization to function properly where there is balance. Let's take it a step further. There needs to be organization within the body, a body like this. But we have to remember it is much more than an organization. It's an organism. This is a living entity. There is nothing like this in the world to compare it to. There are organizations of government. There are organizations of factories. There are organizations with school systems. But this is a unique entity that God has designed called church that is a body, an organism that is functioning, that is feeling, that is interrelated, that is interdependent. And that organization organization is a living organism. Let me take it a step further. That he talks about the head of this body is Jesus Christ. This, this organization means that he is the Lord. He is the master. We aren't. Not a synod. Not some presbytery. Not some bishop. Not some preacher. We are not the heads of it. The head of this body is Jesus Christ. Okay? And yet, he gives organization, he gives some authority and responsibilities to lead and to guide, but he's the head. Let's go a little bit further. God has designed local churches to have a great deal of variety. It's a good thing that not everybody has the same opinions about how to heat this auditorium. Right? No, some of you are saying, no way. Whoever's in charge of that thermostat, I want it to set it my way. Now, I'm picking on something that's goofy that we joke about. But isn't it good in this body that not everybody has the same gifts? If everybody had the same gift of playing, let's say, everybody could play piano, then what would be the problem? What would be the natural attack Satan would make if all of us were, were skilled piano players? We'd all want to... Uh, isn't this true in sports? You get the, the main athlete on that's the team star. What does this team star want? He wants the ball. He wants to be able to continue being the, yeah, being the star. Okay. If every one of us had the exact same gifts, aren't, aren't you glad that some people have a gift for teaching? Okay. Because some of you, you are afraid of crowds. A crowd of one terrifies you. Okay? Somebody else has that gift. But some of you have the gift of hospitality. That is a wonderful gift. Some of you have the gift of, of being able to guide and administer. And some of you have the gift of encouragement. We can decide. We can just keep on going with those. There is an interdependence in the body. Just like with your physical body, he uses the analogy that all the parts are interdependent. He is saying that within the local body, there is variety, but they need to be interdependent. This is, this is so important philosophically. This means that we who are leading and guiding and trying to give direction to the body must remember we can't do it ourselves. We're not, it's not designed that we do it. It is designed that we involve and guide and incorporate as many individuals who are willing to get involved in ministry as possible. Because if you don't contribute, you don't grow. Philosophically, this is, this is really critical mass. Why do we do what we do? I've been questioned by this several times. Why do we rotate teachers? 
in our in our, all of our all of our ministries we rotate that we say we want more teachers we want more teachers why do we have it in the bulletin we're asking for more teachers don't we have enough teachers yeah I, I so and so taught them aren't they teaching them all year round we purposely rotate in all the children's ministries for two reasons number one reason we don't want to do what to those individuals who are teaching we don't want to burn them out number two we want to give them opportunity to do what to sit and learn at times to keep on growing number three and they're not in this order of importance it isn't biblical that only a few do all the ministry it is biblical that we incorporate more and more and more people and involve and get them okay part of our outreach should be doing Bible studies should only one or two people conduct the Bible studies I don't think so I don't think that fits this mold biblically. What it does fit, what does fit is training you and more of you to do more of the home Bible studies for evangelism. So philosophically, you say, yeah, but we're paying you to do the job. See, that's where we get into this philosophical point of view. Biblical point of view is, what is the role of the pastor? Is the role of the pastor to do the work for you or to train you to do the work? It's to train you. It's to train you. It's not to do the work. And if we're running ministries where we and we alone are doing that ministry, I want that ministry to stop. Now, I understand, I'm not talking the pulpit ministry because that's, that's very specified. But if we're doing, let's, let's say, outreach ministries, and the outreach ministry involves one, of, one, two, or three of our staff, and they're the only ones doing it, nobody else, do you, do you understand why we would say, let's pull the plug in that ministry? Because it's not accomplishing a bigger purpose. The bigger purpose is to train you to do ministry. And if nobody is willing to do that ministry, then what should we do? Find a ministry that fulfills the purposes and get you, that you're going to get involved with and feel comfortable in doing and train you to do that. So philosophically, let's go a little bit further. Okay, God has designed the church to grow in the sense that we should be growing numerically. And that is not because, please, I say this, and, I'll, and I know I'm going to get an email or a note about it. You just are concerned about numbers. Okay, in a way I am. I'll grant you that in a way I am. I think we should be growing by reaching more people for Christ. When do we stop doing that? When we reach capacity of this room, by the way, the capacity of this room was 666. That's the seating capacity. We changed it. Okay, just because we weren't comfortable with saying to you, we can seat 666 in this room. Okay, so we altered two pews so that the capacity in this room is not 666, it's 664. Okay, so when we hit 664 people, we shouldn't grow anymore. We should stop because we're, we're no. No, I, I think I violate scripture if I, if I direct us that way. I think that if we stop growing internally, if we as a body stop, stop building each other up, I think we violate scripture. So we need to keep growing. Now, the greatest virtue in this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians, where he talks about the body, do you remember what chapter 13 is all about? After he talks about the body and the different parts? 
You may have certain, you may be able to, well, how does he say it? You may be able to have a gift to have the tongues of the angels of men. You may be like sounding brass. You may be able to do, understand the mysteries and the prophecies. But if you have not, okay, then we're nothing. So what's the church really? Let me give you a definition that I believe is a biblical definition. This is where we go philosophically. A church is an organized assembly of born-again believers, I'm going to add one to another phrase in a moment, who are united to Christ, who voluntarily unite with one another to do God's business as prescribed by God's word. That's church. Okay. With that, I'm going to add one more thought. What, what do you think the other thought is? Is there another prerequisite? Born-again believers. Can you think of another biblical prerequisite? Okay, let's, let's jump to Acts chapter 2. Then they that gladly received his word, what is that? Okay, the salvation. They got saved. They were what? They're baptized. And then they join unto the number of the souls that is given. So we could add in there a number of uh, truly born-again baptized believers who join into a body to say this is what we're committed to do, to following the business. Now, here's, here is, this is so important. That we're, I'm going to spend a series starting next Sunday preaching on. Okay, what's God's business? Is, okay, I, I appreciate some of your, your, is our sole business, is our primary business to get people saved? If we don't agree what the primary purpose is, we're in trouble. Right? Because then you're going to have different expectations than you're going to have. And you're going to wonder why we do something and you're going to wonder why they think that. And we won't have unity. Do you, see, do you understand why this is important that I pause after five years and delay and I kick myself that I delayed this long? We need to understand what is our primary purpose. Our primary purpose for existence is to glorify God. Okay? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the... Okay. And he says you were created for one purpose, for his pleasure. That's the reason we exist. Therefore, whatever we do... However we do a service, we have to ask ourselves this question. Does this glorify God? The music we use, does this glorify God? The, the way we present the gospel, does this glorify God? Is this, something, is this something that brings honor to God? By the way, that dictates we cannot, we cannot incorporate in any of our ministries deception. Lying. Trickery, deceitfulness. You say, well, who would do that? Okay. So, so the preacher gets up, and I told you the story before. The preacher gets up and he says, next Sunday, you bring everybody here. You bring everybody you can. I'm going to show you something that you've never seen in your life, you'll never see again. You get people here, they're going to see something they've never, ever seen before, and never see again. They got this church packed. Small little country church. They got everybody in town coming to think that there was going to be something. The pastor stood up and the pastor broke open a peanut shell. And he held up a peanut. They had never seen it before because it was in a shell. And so that they would never see it again, he ate it. I'm sorry. I just look at that and go, that is so chicanery. That is so borderline stupid. Okay? What do lost people think when they see something like that? Okay? 
is how does that glorify God that we, that we, that we pull strings this way? So we have to be careful what we do, not only what we do, but the way we do it. Okay, Okay, now, there are certain responsibilities given to us as a church of how to glorify God. Okay, as a bride, and this is, let's use an anachronism dealing with a bride. Another term for my bride is, the most common term, wife. Let's use W-I-F-E. Let's assign ourselves, this is how we glorify God. Is it only, I'm going to throw this out, that our, the only way we glorify God is to get people saved? No, it can't be. It can't be. Because the Great Commission included not just get them saved, okay, discipled, and that discipleship included baptism and training them in the entirety of the Word of God. Right? Okay. So we agree that evangelism is really important. That's one of the WIFEs. That's obviously the E, okay, evangelism. It's one of our main, one of our primary tasks. But we have to do evangelism by, by making sure our evangelism, first of all, glorifies God. Okay, W would stand for what? Oh, I, I set this up, not even give you a chance. The W stands for? Yeah, there you go. Okay, worship, we'll talk about that. What do you think the I is? Instruction. You got it. Okay. What we're supposed to be instructing. That's that part of that great commission. Teach them to observe all things. Okay. What does the F stand for? Okay. I'm going to put it, I'm going to use the word fellowship. Okay. Are we supposed to be helping one another? Are we to be building up one another? Are we to be confronting one another? Oh, yeah. Okay. And then the E I said stands for? Evangelism. Okay. Now, which one of them is most important? Uh, they're all important. That means that with WIFE, what do we have to strive that is the hardest thing to do? We have to keep a what? Got to keep a balance. Good luck. Because doesn't sometimes, some seasons say we're going to be focused more on worship? And some seasons where it's going to be more inclined to do more evangelism? And some seasons we're going to have fellowship and instruction. And so we're trying to make a ba- keep this in a balance. But all of this must be done under the basic umbrella. What is it? It has to be conducted in a way that does what? It glorifies God. So we glorify God, but our goals are W-I-F-E. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Now the organization, I'm not going to get to telling you a story about our church. I'll pick up there next week. Tell you how we got started. Okay, we have to remember that in the organization, Christ is the head. He's assigned some under-shepherds. We call them pastors. It's one of the four different five different titles given to the pastors in the New Testament that are all equal, that we'll talk about later. They are to lead, not drive. They are supposed to be given specific responsibilities. If you don't know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some time to talk about it. If you don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, we've got a problem. Because you've got different expectations that what I'm going to produce, and as a result, both of us are not going to be happy with each other. Okay? So you, excuse me, you need to understand what we're supposed to do. Let's, uh, let's go a little bit further. Okay? Pastors lead, but the congregation has a main, a main say. This is what we call pastor-led, congregational-ruled churches, where who decides what we purchase? Not me. 
Not me, buddy. Who decides what we do with our budgets? Not me. Okay, who decides that? You do. Who decides if we build another building? Not me. Okay, I'll, that, that, that's in granite. Okay, that's, gonna, that's you. That's you. Acts 15, the pastor made recommendation. James stood up, he made recommendation, but it said, this saying pleased the entire body and the leadership. And then they chose to do it. Let's go a step, a step further. God has also said that there's supposed to be deacons. If, if th- This is probably the most drastic philosophical difference between churches. Is, uh, is the idea, what's the job of the deacon? The job of the deacon is to make sure the pastors do their job. They're the watchdogs of the pastors. No, not biblically. Not biblically. The deacons are to keep the pastor from getting too much authority. No, not biblically. That's not, the, that's not what it is at all. Now, that may be from churches of your experience, but that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the deacons and the pastors are partners in ministry, that they work together, that the deacons come next to the pastor in Acts chapter 6 and to assist those who are giving themselves to the praying and the preaching so that they can focus and stay focused on the work of praying and preaching and the deacons relieve them of some of those other mundane responsibilities. I say mundane without trying to be critical, but taking care and visiting the widows, in particular in Acts chapter 6. So that the pastors can be focused on the idea that they're supposed to be praying and preaching and taking care. Because otherwise, I'll, I'll tell you the biggest struggle in ministry. Bless you. The biggest struggle in ministry is this. Keeping priorities. By the way, the biggest struggle in your marriage is what? Keeping priorities. The biggest struggle in your job? Keeping priorities. The biggest struggle in ministry is not getting distracted with all other types of details and forgetting the praying and the preaching. So to do that, God said, I'm going to give you some helpers within the church body that are mature individuals to help keep some of that balance. So that's his organization. The question is, when did this all begin? I'll just give you a synopsis in in 30 seconds. We began actually in 1974. In 1974, we began a church, and let me jump ahead. Let me just see if you recognize this. You ever see this building before? Do you know where it's at? It's right downtown, 422. Okay? That's where we started. We started this, this entity did not start it as Faith Baptist Church. It started five years earlier in 1974, and it started by a totally different name, there was a man who grew up in this community that had a burden for this community. He wanted to start a church, so he started, he got a hold of that building, started renting it out, they eventually bought it, and he started holding services and started inviting people. They built the church up to right around 200 people in a matter of about two, two and a half years. And it was growing, and it was doing a job. The only problem was that upstairs is your first floor where those windows are in the basement, the, the windows were ground level. Um, that upstairs, they would be teaching one thing, and downstairs, people were teaching you can lose your salvation. So within the church body, they were teaching major doctrinal shifts. But that was fine, somebody said. We can, man- we can operate that, by- that way with such different doctrinal teachings. Uh, guess what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Within a period of a short time, the entire thing imploded. 
And it became, it, it got its name in the front page in the newspaper. Not front page, in one of the back pages of the newspaper. Because they were the church that had one of the biggest splits in the community that caused such an uproar. They ran a, a page in the newspaper about this church and how it was splitting and what they were doing. And it, it created such a terrible name for Christ. And they, they, they had three, they really worked hard. They had three more pastors come in in a period of a year and a half. And those three guys grew it down to 18 people attending. And that's when uh, there, was a con- there was conversations made, can somebody come and help us? And there was a church down in Lansdale, PA, that said, we'll help you. We'll send people up to start preaching. And so they started sending up some, some people. This is the pastor on the left, E.R. Jordan, of that church in Lansdale. And one of his seniors in the school that he had started was Dave Burgraff. And Dave came up. Now, Dave didn't look like that. This is what he looked like when back in 79. Okay. And uh, some others in the family changed over the years as well. When we came up, we were starting with 18 people. And we, uh, I don't like that picture. Okay. I don't like that picture either. Okay. So we started the church for reviving a, a broken down church. And we ended up then reorganizing. I'll tell you more of that story next week.